This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hey. Welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and joining me today is my associate, Justin Oza. Hey, Justin, how are you? Doing great. Uh, you can't expect me to do such an amazing accent as you just <laughs> did, Duncan. I did not expect that at all. Uh, well, I've, I've been watching Mickey Blue Eyes for reference here. You know, <laughs> I see myself as the, the Hugh Grant in this role. Um, <laughs> that's all right. That's all right, Justin. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Yeah, I think I realized um, I was on Primitive Culture before. I think it was back in 2018 even, talking about MASH and Catch-22 and Treachery Faith mm-hmm. and Great River. And so, it has been a while. And I know we talked about this topic we'll be talking about way back in almost a year ago actually is when you put out the list so it's great to finally connect on this and i'm really looking forward to it this is one of those topics that's been on the kind of primitive culture back burner for a while and when clara left i sort of sent out a call out to the trek fm host saying you know here are some of the ideas that uh, i've got lined up does anyone want to pick one and you jumped onto this one and then of course uh, the picard show came along and your schedule kind of must have gone nuts doing that i don't know i mean i I do one of these once a fortnight. I don't know how you were doing that weekly show and recording for like long, long sessions and editing and everything. Well, and it was two, it was two weekly shows. Mm. I was doing Earl Grey for TNG and then the line for Picard. So every week I'd have both of them and sometimes I'd be editing one or the, Mm. it was insane, Duncan. And then my, my work kind of got crazy. So actually not long after that, I ended up leaving Earl Grey, not because I didn't love it. I loved doing it, but I just couldn't accommodate it in my schedule with work. I mean, yeah. So now I do one and it's not, every week since Picard's not on the air. So it's uh, become much more manageable. But but yeah, that was that time period when I was doing both and I was having to rewatch the episodes and take notes for Picard was insane. I bet, I bet, I can imagine. Well, we're not here to talk about Picard today. Anyway, we're talking about DS9 (laughs) again. uh, Second time having you on the show, second time talking about DS9. And as my dubious uh, impression may have hinted, I don't know, we're talking about the episode Bada Bing Bada Bang, which is an episode, I don't know about you, I, I... Love this episode, but I was interested to look at it. Oh, good, good. Um, I think it's a real um, gem. In in fact, Duncan, at one point, this was my favorite episode in Star Trek. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that is is high praise. High praise indeed. (laughs) But the 
element of it I was interested in looking at is the link between this episode and the 1960 film Ocean's Eleven, uh, which was, uh, for anyone who's seen the more recent version of Ocean's Eleven, was obviously the influence, the inspiration for those movies. The original starred Frank Sinatra. The sort of basic gist of it, I suppose, is fairly similar to the first of the modern Ocean's film. You know, it's about... a group of criminals who try to uh, rip off a casino or several casinos actually they go after five casinos i think in, in the original film yeah i, I would <laughs> you know i'd never seen oceans 11 and when they said they were going to go after five i was like that is really really ambitious guys yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of overkill and to be honest i found it slightly confusing because they're they're intercutting between scenes in these five different casinos and the only way they manage to differentiate them is by having different because it takes place over new year's eve different sort of decorations for the new year's eve party in the different casinos yeah and they have they have this the sign for each of the casinos i mean to be honest i've never seen oceans 11 before which is surprising because i like a lot of movies from like the 30s to the 60s but i'd never happened to see it before and when i was watching it and found out it was five and they were showing you like here's how they're setting it up here here honestly it became too repetitive for me like i like in the deep space nine episode i mean partly because you know it's 45 minutes but they stick to one right they're just trying to do this thing in one but when you're trying to do it in five and oceans 11 i found like wow this is really repetitive like okay i get it you're setting up this thing or that thing like five different ways (laughs) so that, that was an interesting choice they kind of made in the in the movie it almost felt like you know because in the movie you have these guys from the Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. and all that. It almost felt like an ad for like the different casi- like casinos that they would do shows at. Mm. It was kind of interesting. Well, I didn't realize the Sands, which is one of the casinos that they're knocking off, was actually where Frank Sinatra was based for many years. You know, he had his, just like Vic has his kind of residency uh, in, in his casino, uh, Sinatra had his own. So there's a weird kind of element there and, and and that actually carries forward into the the modern oceans films because again they use real casinos i think which i find strange they don't invent sort of fictional ones but they're actually um you know fictionally knocking off these real places it kind of adds an extra i don't know it sort of adds an extra element of danger to it somehow the fact that these are real uh businesses that they're swindling one way or another yeah and, and one thing like so when i was thinking about this as well i don't know the kinds of topics that you want to talk about for these, but, but like I found there were some interesting connections between the movie and between Bada Bing Bada Bang, which is clearly influenced by Ocean's Eleven. So, I mean, I guess just as an example, you know, Frank Sinatra is a big part of Ocean's Eleven and originally for Vic, they wanted Frank Sinatra Jr. to be part of that, right? And it ended up becoming James Darren in, instead. I, I don't know. There's, there's just something about, you know, they already had this, this kind of, singer in that style that it, it just made perfect sense to to bring over that kind of story and james darren is as i understand it kind of peripherally you know not a member of the rat pack but he kind of knew some of those guys and he kind of had interactions with them do you know what i mean he's not he's not a stranger to that world that's sort of why they got him in as vic fontaine in the first place so it does it does sort of make perfect sense i mean i have to say for what it's worth i enjoyed watching this movie as I say, I love the DS9 episode. I feel like this is one of those ones where in some ways Star Trek maybe did it better. Uh, certainly, I think the the remake with George Clooney and so on uh, is a better film than the original 1960s yeah. film. Yeah, I haven't seen the remake yet, so I can't kind of comment on that. But like seeing Ocean's Eleven, like there were aspects that I really enjoyed about it. But overall... I like had a lot of problems enjoying the movie, whereas the DS9 episode is like one of my favorite things in Star Trek. I like just watching them side by side. I enjoyed it like a hundred times more than the, than the, than the movie that inspired it. I feel like they kind of 
improved on a lot because it's almost like, you know, in Ocean's Eleven, there's kind of like this this boys club that's doing these things, right? And, the, and this criminal thing that they want to do to to take this money. Whereas in the DS9 episode, it's much more noble. Like Vic is in danger. This, even though he's a hologram, they really care about him. He's their friend. And they're going to do this in order to basically, you know, keep him away from harm. So I really like kind of the noble purpose that they had. Whereas in the other one, it's just in the original movie, it's just like, we're just selfish and greedy and we want some money to spend on whatever we want it was just like such an amazing contrast and like how they kind of changed that around they're quite unlikable characters in the original movie i think and they're also i mean there's a lot of them there's 11 of them obviously and i don't know about you i found it hard to distinguish you know other than the kind of there's a sort of lead bunch of them i found them hard to distinguish and actually again with the you know the steven soderbergh ones the more recent ones Again, obviously, there are 11 of them, but I feel like they managed to... Each one of them gets a bit more of a moment to shine somehow than they do in this original uh, Ocean's Eleven movie. I don't know. So, I guess all I'm trying to say is it's an iconic movie insofar as it kind of registered culturally, I think. But it's not necessarily, for my money, a particularly great movie, partly because of the pacing. I think that they're not very likeable characters the pacing is sort of glacially slow. It takes about an hour to get to the point where they're actually having the meeting, you know, to discuss like their briefing, how are they going to do this job? It's a two hour film. So they, you get halfway through before you get to that point. And then half an hour after that, the heist is over. So the heist, you know, from planning to execution is only a quarter of the movie. And there's all this sort of padding around it and all this stuff. And then there's the kind of complication because spoiler alert, uh, one of them dies unexpectedly of a heart attack and that kind of, um, they get this sort of third act effectively out of the uh, crisis that ensues because of that and, and whether they'll be able to get the money away or not. But it's a weird, I think it's a weird film. And I can see they obviously sold it at the time on the fact that they had these actors, they had, you know, the Rat Pack were in it. It's kind of cool in a way, although in a slightly, as I say, slightly kind of slow slightly boring way but, um, but they're very cool. You know, you get them singing. I mean, Sammy Davis Jr. is singing. You've got... Um, Dean Martin singing. I can't remember whether we actually get Sinatra singing at any point. I didn't, I'm not sure that we did, weirdly, which you'd think would be the obvious. I mean, you, you know, why is he doing it otherwise? And, and you can kind of imagine at that time, people going to the cinema and thinking, you know, maybe this was like the, the cool film to see in 1960, but it doesn't, it, I don't know, it doesn't translate so well, I think. Whereas the DS9 episode, it has so much heart, it has so much humour. It doesn't take itself too seriously. That's part of it. It's a silly episode, you know. Whereas this movie, there are jokes in it, but it kind of plays it pretty straight for the most part. Like an interesting comment that my wife had, who's seen the original movie and the remakes and all of that, was like, like to a certain extent, these guys in the Rat Pack, especially like, you know, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and, and all of them, are just kind of playing themselves. It's almost as if the director was like, hey guys, it's just like a typical day, like hanging around in your apartment, go. You know, like it, 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 there's just something about that first hour that's almost like they felt for the audience at the time, like, wouldn't it be cool just to see what it would be like when Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin are just hanging out? But it didn't necessarily like contribute to the buildup of, you're right, it takes like about an hour for them to get to the meeting where they're like, okay, what are we going to do here? You know, and I, and I was surprised that it, that it took that long. And then when it got like there, there, when you say there's a cool aspect, I think that's, that's the case to a certain extent. Like I, I really like the music and like the opening credits that has this early, like sixties kind of feel to it. That's, that's just kind of fun, but it feels like the actual, you know, 
dialogue and some of what's happening doesn't quite live up to that. Like, I, I would have much preferred if it was, I don't know, in, in some way written as something that was maybe, I don't know, a little more more clever or something. It just, it did, it did feel straight. Like, okay, we want some money. How are we going to get it? We try to get it. We're not successful. The end. I mean, it, it's almost a simple. Massive that, spoiler it? there, Justin. <laughs> You're giving away the twist. Well, you said the twist in the tale, but stuff, fair enough. But... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, I have to say, because normally in these stories, they kind of, uh, yeah. they come off okay. Obviously, in the DS9 example, it, the, the plan goes, you know, it goes according to plan. But in a not way, I first, felt they deserved eventually. it. I, don't, I didn't feel they deserved that money at all, you know, so. It was very of its time that it's like a crime doesn't pay kind of message mm. like hey you try to do that in the end you get nothing yeah yeah <laughs> so, yeah and one of them ends up dead so <laughs> they get less than nothing effectively well it's a weird one i mean i, I think it, it I, I do think a big part of it is that maybe they thought the charisma of those performers because obviously they are very charismatic performers would carry across to sort of likability for the characters now, when you get to the modern remake, you cast someone like George Clooney, who is kind of nothing but charisma on, on some level. You know, it sort of makes sense. You've, you've got to kind of fall in love with these slightly shady characters. I don't know if you ever watched, there was a show here um, probably about 15 years ago called Hustle. Did you ever see that? Which was about a group of uh, con artists, basically. But again, they were just, it was a really, really great show. It's worth checking out, but very charming, very sort of likable. All of them are actually really likable characters one way or another. Uh, you know, a bit roguish, obviously, but um, you really rooted for them. Whereas I sort of felt you didn't get that in this storyline uh, for, for the original Oceans. You don't get that. And, and I guess it can be a disadvantage with a movie sometimes too, right? Like, okay, you know who who these guys are as far as, you know, performers elsewhere, but as far as the characters inside the movie, you're just getting to learn who they are. Whereas in the DS9 episode, you've been watching these characters and hopefully loving them for, you know, seven years. And so you're really rooting for them and you know where they're coming from and like all of that. So there's almost like this shorthand that you don't have to build up the character. It's just all about how how they react to the situation. And I think it had that advantage as well, being in kind of an episode format. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it helps, as you say, that everyone has a reason for doing it, which again, actually, even in the in the modern Oceans 11, interestingly, they had to change that. They gave the George Clooney character a motivation, which is a slightly dubious one, which is that the guy who owns the casino has kind of while he's been in prison, stolen his wife, basically. And so really, he's not after the money. He's after, he, he wants revenge on this guy and he wants to win his wife, slightly improbably win his wife back through the heist, which he does, uh, <laughs> you know, in the end. But so there's, so they kind of have to personalize it. And I think it's quite clever the way in the DS9 episode, you have this sense of everyone has a reason, you know, Nog obviously owes Vic a lot from um, It's Only a Paper Moon. Uh, Kira and Odo have this, you know, owe him a lot. I mean, Miles and Julian, obviously they're, you know, he's like a friend to them basically they, because they spend all their time in the Hollow Suites. And then you've got this kind of interesting element where you've got Cisco, who's basically much more suspicious about all this and, and sort of basically saying, you know, what's wrong with you all? This is ridiculous. And uh, and I think on some level, the plot is ridiculous. I mean, I watched it with my girlfriend who, generally speaking, hates Star Trek. She agreed to watch it because I said it was about a 1960s casino heist. And actually, she quite enjoyed it. And she said, I don't mind watching Star Trek if it's going to be a period drama. But, you know, as long as there's no spaceships or whatever. But uh, but she was like, this is very silly. You, you know, I, I, I thought Star I didn't know Star Trek was this silly, basically. So, and, and I think it's kind of baked into it that you've got Cisco acknowledging how silly it is for the first like 
10 minutes the episode or whatever. And I think Ira Stephen Bear said he kind of partly put that in because he was aware there were DS9 fans who didn't like Vic. I mean, I've always loved Vic. I think he's a great character, but I've loved you know, some too, people but, hate yeah. him. Some people really, it, it doesn't work for them. They think it's too cheesy or whatever. And that he almost put that in, you know, partly for the social commentary that we get, but also just to have someone basically saying, you know, you're all nuts. <laughs> what are you doing? This is a computer game. Well, you know? Cisco also, yeah, he also has a big problem because he says, okay, in that time there was segregation and someone like me wouldn't be able to to do this thing that, that you're talking about. And he has to kind of get over that, which is kind of an interesting thing because, you know, it it's true. Um, and I think it's underappreciated sometimes that in the United States there was you know, segregation outside of, of the South and for, you know, quite well into the, you know, 50s and 60s in some places. But I think that actually by the period, he says it's 1962, I think it may have been starting to come to an end. I think partly if I remember right from the influence of Frank Sinatra, who at a certain point, I think, refused to to play there if they didn't end segregation, something like that. I need to look up the history, but, but like, interestingly, there and and that's one of the things I love about DS9, like they're acknowledging that there was something in the past history that you have to be aware of, like Far Beyond the Stars is probably the best example, like being aware of, you know, the, the pain of discrimination and, and racism. Um, and, and he's kind of like, yeah, but I don't want to, you know, contribute to something that's, that's not the way that it, that it was. But, you know, I mean, he eventually gets convinced because it's like, well, shouldn't, we see something the way it should have been, you know, so he eventually gets into it. And, and I really like that, but like, it's, it, it is interesting in terms of like, they have to convince Cisco and there are these different motivations. Whereas in the original movie, somehow it's just like, well, we're just all about the money. And I thought when I was watching it, it was a little odd because in the original movie, there are these guys who are part of the 82nd airborne division and, you know, presumably some played some kind of heroic role in world war two. And here they are 15 years later, just out to get a bunch of cash. That seemed like a disconnect to me. That seemed like almost like an odd message for them to put in a movie, especially that time. I don't know what you thought about that, but there's always been like, when I watched it, there was this disconnect, like these guys are supposed to be like heroic participating in world war two. And they're doing this like amoral thing just for, the money you know there's a kind of cynicism to that certainly i mean i don't have a problem with that so much because i think you know they may well have been drafted i mean sinatra i think uh, by the sounds of it kind of dodged the draft one way or another or at least that was a, an allegation that was leveled at him you know he should have been out fighting that war and he wasn't possibly you know they may not have necessarily signed up because they were noble patriotic you know uh you, do, you, do you know what I mean? And they they were forced to do but that. They were a crack a, team. They they were obviously good at it. And you've got this interesting connection, I think, with the DS9 as well, that, you know, this is a group of... I mean, one of the reasons this is kind of a silly episode is because it's in the midst of this war arc. You know, we have these guys who are, you know... I mean, as we the whole storyline with Nog and Vic before was about, you know, an injury that he sustained in the war. I mean, DS9 is, is doing this, and this is their kind of last hurrah before... Uh, because this was filmed, although it was aired... Uh, before into armor and in silent legacy it was uh, designed to be uh it was it was, uh, it was filmed after it and it was designed to be the final episode before those last that last stretch basically uh hence the song at the end the best is yet to come it being a kind of tease for like you know just wait and see what yeah, the storyline is we've got coming around the corner I, you know? I love that actually that that song at the end that's one of my favorite moments mm, in star trek absolutely. it's just so wonderful and you actually get to see everybody yeah. sing but but yeah there there is something that's like interestingly like this triumphant moment 
before it gets really, really serious and, you know, this long 9-10 episode arc. And, and I think it is interesting that DS9 was able to do that during this the Dominion War, that they would have things like Bada Bing Bada Bang, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, um, that would just kind of, I don't know, take a different tonal direction or, or be, you know, a bit of a, a relief from more serious things. And I really like that they do that because I think, you know, in in anything like that, it, they're not going to be like in battle and at war like 24 hours a day, right? There are going to be times where they're just waiting to see what happens, waiting for their orders or whatever, and there'll be things that they they do to to use their time. So, I really like that they put those things in there and I'm I'm really happy that they put this episode in here. I guess they didn't have to, but but yeah, it was kind of like the last standalone, right? In in DS9 before it all was completely connected because you could not watch this episode and not really miss anything if you just skipped over it and went to the, you know, inner armor or something like that, but yeah. And it's the same trick they pulled previously if you think about it because within the in the cards is the episode that this reminds me of in some ways which we talked about last time which again was the last episode before you went into that big war arc at the end of season five the start of season six so it's it's almost like both times they have a big bit of sort of epic uh serialized war storytelling we get beforehand this little light comedy this is you know a comedy but also just it's these episodes where the stakes are peculiarly low. So in the cards, the stakes are literally, you know, does someone get their teddy bear back? <laughs> or, you know, do they get a, a, or a, base, a baseball or card or whatever? Yeah, exactly. Card. It's, it's yeah. trivial. Uh, in this episode, you know, other than for Vic, who uh, I, I suppose it depends, you know, how seriously you take Vic's existence and so on. And maybe we do. I mean, there is real threat to Vic. But I take it very seriously. Fair enough. But in terms of anyone <laughs> else... There is no, yeah. I mean, apart from poor old O'Brien who gets strip searched uh, as part of the heist. Oh, but, God. You know, yeah, I'd uh, forgotten about that until I saw it. It's the kind of O'Brien must like, suffer even in the holodeck caper. Yeah. But really, the stakes are fantastically low. And yet, it doesn't matter because there's, there's tension, there's kind of suspense, there's, you know, within its own terms, the story. You know, actually, I mean, as I say, my girlfriend watching it, she was kind of biting her nails. She, she was saying, this is really tense. You know, I want to know, are they going to do it or not? <laughs> yeah. So they managed to get all of that, despite the fact that really it's just a game and it really, you know, it, it doesn't matter compared to the stuff, you know, the very next episode, as it would have been, you know, launching into that final arc. They couldn't be more different in terms of the kind of real world, real world, you know, in quote marks, stakes of the story. But yet. That's one of the great things about DS9. They managed they managed to make both those things work so successfully. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And, and and even with the um the aired order, I mean, bada bing bada bang couldn't be more different than Inner Arma, which is you know this kind of a bit of a tense kind of spy thriller that that you get before the the big arc. So it is something that's quite different. But I I I do love that they they did that because it just always makes me so happy to watch the the episode because you know everything that they've been through right and they're they're able to kind of work together despite things not working out and them having to to you know improvise that that they get the you know the victory it is very much like in the cards that way like they they get this small victory that really helps to kind of bolster their spirits and and take a break from things and it's it's perfect because that's how life is sometimes like it's not serious stuff like all the time right there i mean there are serious things that can happen for long stretches but there are also other things that you can enjoy or laugh at or whatever so it feels very realistic that way to me and the small victories are important i mean they're important for morale aside from anything else 
I was interested when you said, you know, Cisco has to get over himself. He kind of has to or get, get over this issue. It struck me watching it. You know, I wonder what is what is it that changes his mind? Is it that he thinks, oh, maybe I'm being a bit pompous and taking this a bit too seriously, which, you, you know, it may be. Or is it that he realises that this means something to all these people that he cares about and who and who he's responsible for and whose morale is important as, and is part of his job? And that ultimately part of being a good leader entails recognising, OK, you know, these guys are all wrapped up in this idiotic game. They want me to play it with them. Uh, you know, Picard famously, it took him seven seasons to get around that poker table. Cisco, it seems to take, you know, one kind of moody evening, you know, thinking on it. And then he's like, okay, fine, I'm here, you know, and, and then he's sort of throwing himself into it. And it certainly seems like he's enjoying it, but, you know, even down to the song at the end. But equally, is it that, I, I think he is enjoying it. I th- definitely, I think Avery Brooks plays it that he's enjoying it by that point. But, it also strikes me maybe there's an element that he's doing it for them because it's what they want and they kind of need him to be there and to show up and to fulfill that role and to show that he's validating their, you know, potentially slightly silly hobby. Yeah, I think there may be some element to that. Like, all right, everybody's into this. Maybe this will help. So I'll go along with it. Or, or maybe it's just like, I guess if everybody's going to do it. I might as well be there just to to help out or to to make sure things don't go wrong or whatever. I I don't know. It, and I was also trying to think like when you get to this episode, what kind of mood is Cisco in? What was what happened before right before this one? I was trying to remember. Well, by the time you get to that kind of final arc, he seems quite mellow. He's, you know, they're having a baby, they're getting married, he's buying a house. Do you know what I mean? He's he seems to be in a kind of quite um He's sort of settling down. Do you know what I mean? He, in a, and maybe there's an element of that as well with him, you know, the singing at the end and everything. He's kind of um, relaxing. You know, there is a slight element of, you know, Picard at the poker table. It's kind of, you know, I'm going to set aside this stern persona because he can be quite intimidating. And even in this episode, there's that great scene at the beginning where he, you know, very softly says to them, you know, are any of you going to do any work anytime soon, basically? And there is this kind of sense <laughs> right? of, oh yeah, when they're okay, talking the boss has, has waded in, you know. He can be kind of quite, quite stern, quite sort of foreboding in some ways, as much as he's also a character with a great sense of humour. And I think it's quite nice that we see, we, we see Cisco go on that whole journey and that, you know, even in this one episode from the kind of, the most kind of cool and, he's not sort of cool and aloof the way Picard can be, but he's kind of, he can be a bit sort of strict, do you know what I mean? And a bit stern. And I think we see that at the beginning and then obviously he really kind of lets his hair down and, uh, you know, by the end he's, seemingly having a great old time i think it's an interesting point because i think like uh, cisco is one of one of my favorites of the lead characters from the different star trek series but i know for some people it may be a little bit difficult because he can have those stern or strict moments or he can do things that especially early on or maybe like seem a little silly or weird (laughs) but but um and, and you know i think part of that is you know if of course, I've seen an interview with, with Avery Brooks. He's, he's an unusual kind of person, the way that he talks about things and the way that he thinks about things. But I kind of really like that because I think, you know, across the seven seasons of, of DS9, you're, you're seeing someone that kind of is, is very much aware of, of his own history and what he's been through, but also as you see in, you know, this episode in Far Beyond the Star is very aware of the history of, you know, his ancestors and everything that they went through to help, you know, get him to the point that, that he's at. So he's very aware of, of what come came before in his own life and in, in the world, but he's also someone that 
is kind of aware of his own duty as a Starfleet officer and sometimes struggles with that, especially at the beginning of, of, uh, of DS9. But he's also, you know, this interesting figure that's considered, you know, an important religious figure in Bajoran society. And he kind of gradually kind of deals with that. But I, f- I feel like Cisco is one of those characters where he is definitely not, you know, static or the same person week to week in, in these episodes. You see all of these different facets of his personality and what makes him who he is and how he's reacting over the long term to all of these things that happen in the show and that happened before. So, I really like his character for that. And I think you're right. In this one episode, you see him go from, from being like, come on, people get back to work or that's really silly or I don't want to you know, validate, you know, smoothing over the racism that happened to, to being like totally into it and saving the day and having fun saying with Vic and all of that. So, like, I think it's great. You see just like a whole range for him in this episode and in, in the series. And that's what I think makes him a great character. And I think it's also, it's characteristic of DS9 that they raise this issue, you know, that they've created this holographic um, environment, which is a lot of fun and is very appealing and so on. And then that there's a kind of awareness that there's a discrepancy between that fiction in Star Trek and the kind of real world reality. um, And that they have a character and particularly, you know, the main character, the captain who's going to raise that. And I mean, in some ways I sort of feel like, you know, maybe he's got a point. Maybe he's right on some level. And actually, you know, I don't know whether it's necessarily kind of morally the right thing that he has to come around and say, oh, actually, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not saying the episode is saying it doesn't matter, but that that it's kind of okay. I also sort of wonder whether on some level that argument operates slightly metaphorically because there's an element of sort of Star Trek has this kind of utopian vision, which to some degree, you know, some people might say is is detached from the gritty reality of human nature, human history, and so on. And obviously, Star Trek's interactions with the darker sides of human history. I mean, obviously, all Star Trek has drawn on that. DS Nine probably drew on it more than any other show. And DS Nine was the show that was willing to show the darker side to kind of chip away at the idealism to kind of say actually things aren't maybe as great as you know as we thought they were in the kind of Star Trek universe. And obviously, with something like Picard, we're sort of seeing similar. Uh, strands being picked up. I sort of wonder almost, is there an element of kind of Cisco is doing that analysis on, on Vix as a kind of uh, entertainment product that DS9 is doing on Star Trek as an entertainment product, kind of saying, yes, all of that's very nice, but what, a, but what about this? Do you know what I mean? What about this other stuff? And kind of actually the history of human beings is not one of purely noble um, aspirations and good deeds and all these sorts of things. There's kind of other stuff that we need to take. We we can't divorce ourselves from that other stuff. We can't sort of say, oh, yeah, okay, that's just the aliens who do these bad things. You know, so you think of an episode like Past Tense, which, again, interestingly, is not explicitly about race, but has quite a strong subtext of race in it because it's Cisco and Bashir who are the ones who are, are thrown into that environment. So it's the show that kind of... In in some ways, I feel like Star Trek wanted to, you know, was incredibly progressive in the 1960s, you know, in terms of its sort of colour blindness, effectively, basically saying all these people work together, there are no issues, you, you know, even in um, uh, Balance of Terror, Kirk saying, you know, leave your bigotry in your quarters, basically, we, we, we don't do any of that, we don't talk about any of that, we kind of, we, we move beyond all of that. But of course, in that episode, it is, it is still there. It is still there, yes, of course, it is still there. But DS9 is sort of saying... It's always sort of questioning that utopianism and sort of saying, well, you know, uh, let's not forget this stuff and let's not let's not 
pat ourselves on the back too much and so on. So anyway, it, it just sort of struck me that scene, maybe there's an element there of just as far beyond the stars on one level is kind of deconstructing Star Trek and this kind of vision of a, a utopian future uh, coming from a less utopian time. You know, again, this episode is sort of doing, it's sort of doing the same thing in reverse in a way, but it, it's kind of shining a little bit of a light on that discrepancy uh, somehow that Star Trek is the, is the world as we want it to be. But the people writing Star Trek and the people making Star Trek know that that's not, it's no good if it just feels cosy and it kind of, makes us all feel better about things and we shut our eyes to the real world and what's going on in our real history at the same time we kind of got to um have both sides of that coin yeah i think it's a really great point i mean and i think it's one of the reasons that ds9 remains my favorite star trek series because i think they managed to have this this balance of there you know there is the the federation and within the federation there are a lot of problems and a lot of things that have been worked out but that doesn't mean that you don't have to struggle and fight for it. And that, you know, in something like the, the two-parter, like Homefront Paradise Lost, like within the Federation, there are these strains and struggles sometimes looking to, to go toward a, a darker purpose and you have to keep fighting against those things. And also, you know, Deep Space Nine itself, because it's on this station that's outside of the Federation, you get to see more of kind of what happens out there. And it adds all of this, this complexity, which would naturally be there, right? I mean, just because they're, they're Starfleet officers that are, you know, on this station doesn't mean they won't, you know, encounter these things or have to deal with these things. And I mean, of course, and all the other Star Trek shows that are based on a ship and they go out there and they meet aliens and they have to deal with, with this or that. But I feel like DS9 really shows, I think, like the complexity of things on a, on a much wider scale. And that's what I really like about it because like the the utopia that you see especially like in in tng i think is something that we can definitely aspire to but the important thing is aspiring to it and doing better and better and not thinking like okay we've reached that and we're done like that's the end because it's just a constant like reassessment and struggle and you know i think in in every generation we might look at things and say they thought that was okay, but, you know, we've learned more and we think that we need to go this way. It's it's kind of a constant, like, reassessment and improvement process, ideally, and not just saying, like, it stops at a certain point, right? Certainly. And we see that even with Star Trek, you know, going back and looking at, say, 90s episodes where, you, you know, something that might have seemed quite progressive at the time, and then we go back and we look at it in a different way and, and think, well, actually, you know, with the sort of 20, 30-year uh, hindsight there are certain elements that maybe don't land the same now as they did back then, you, you know, that we're kind of aware of different things. I mean, I think also, frankly, Cisco does have a point um, about 1960s Las Vegas, and it's quite noticeable when you watch the original movie. And, and you know, this this movie was not, it's not a coincidence that there, there, there are parallels between the episodes and the movie. I mean, Iris Stephen Bear was very influenced by the movie and actually told the the costume designer to go and it got, it got all of the writers, I think, as well. Basically got everyone to come and watch this movie before they did the episode. And the music was kind of riffing off the music in the movie to some extent well, there's kind of similarities there anyway the costumes were literally they were like renting costumes that matched where possible the costumes in the movie so that they were trying to that. recreate <laughs> the world of this movie within an episode of star yeah. trek um you know quite explicitly and i think if you look at the movie you know cisco has a point i mean yes you've got sammy davis jr in this film but he's playing 
the garbage exactly, man. Exactly, the garbage right? man who can't get a decent, you know, <laughs> unlike these other white guys who Jeez. are in this crack team of, yeah. you know, World War Two soldiers. You know, and this, I suppose, is a bit of social commentary in the film as well, you, you know, in a sense, kind of making this point that they've been able to go on and do various things with their lives. You know, they mostly seem reasonably wealthy and, and to be doing quite well. He has not to the same extent... And the, yes, the whole plot hinges on the fact that he's the garbage guy who's going to get the the money out of Las Vegas in a garbage truck. And no one will suspect him because no one will kind of, he, he's not able to move and, you know, be, he's not able to go in and be the high roller in the casino or whatever. He's not able to kind of move within that world. He's the guy who comes and picks up the trash and uh, no one speaks to him. No one gives him a second look. He's very peripheral. And you kind of see that in the film, I think, at various other points as well. There's, there's another black guy who's... Um, like a porter at the airport or something and is kind of just very uh, sort of unconsciously dismissed. And you see it with the women as well, I think, in the film. I mean, the women, there are female characters in the film, but they're very kind of peripheral. And if anything, they kind of just get in the way. Certainly no uh, allies in the sense that in the DS9 episode, actually the women are the ones in some ways doing most of the work. Now it can, in some ways it's a little bit sexist in that they're, or at least it's a little bit kind of potentially problematic in that basically all the women one way or another have to flirt and kind of use their attractiveness as a way to, as a way of distracting men. But they are at least all three of them quite pivotally involved in what's going on in a way. Whereas the original movie, it's very much a kind of blokey, you know, boys yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, adventure, essentially. And I want to, I want to highlight something that kind of shocked me when I watched Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> so at one point, I think there's a group of four or five of them that are talking about like how they're going to, going to use the money. And like, a couple of things that I saw there and like, even if they're doing this in a joking tone, I think it's just like reprehensible that it was even in the script. Like, I think one of them talks about repealing some amendments to make women slaves and take the vote away from them. And another one talks about like being the commissioner of Indian affairs, effectively like saying he's going to like steal from the, the Native Americans. Like, the, I don't know, there's just something that that's really striking about that. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't like, even if it's in a joking tone, that is that is terrible, and I can't believe that's <laughs> that's in this movie. I know it was sixty years ago, but but like there, there's a certain sense in which, I, like, you, I think you see the difference between like the movie and the episode. Like as you were saying, like you know, three of the nine people that are involved in DS Nine episode are women. Yes, they have to be part of you know this this thing that's less than ideal, but at least they're a part of it, right? It's eleven guys and the other one, and it's a much more diverse group of people in the in the DS Nine episode as well. It's almost like, and and this was almost I think the case in real life for like the Rat Pack in like the the early sixties. Like Sammy Davis Jr. was very famous and definitely a part of it, but. Like I watched a documentary on his life and a lot of times like in the Rat Pack shows, he was kind of like the butt of jokes or like a little more peripheral to the act. So they just, he wasn't treated like quite the the same way. So I think it's, it's, it's kind of emblematic of how people were thinking about things then, especially an adventure that's like 11 guys out to get some money. I don't know. There was just something like t really striking about some of the things that they were just like saying to each other. Right? You're right. Absolutely. And, that, and I guess that's why I, imagine when it first came out this film attracted a kind of i don't know it, it's definitely a sort of guys guys kind of i mean they're basically a group of you, you know we would say today kind of toxic white men plus sammy davis jr do you know what i mean there there is a kind of there's definitely <laughs> yeah. a sort of toxicity to them one way or another and obviously that wouldn't register in the same way then but i think what would have registered is this idea and this again it did kind of make sense for me that they were war uh 
veterans who'd served together. They had this kind of camaraderie together. They had that kind of bond and they're, they are sort of apart from everyone else in the real world, if you know what I mean, somehow. And they've got this kind of slight disdain, which I guess is very fitting with the Rat Pack and that kind of idea of this group of guys who like think they're, you know, God's gift effectively and go around sort of um, misbehaving one way or another. And, you know, not a particularly... There's a kind of sleazy element. There's a kind of, I think that's what, that's what, that's what comes across about them. And even in the way that they do deal with the women that they do encounter and so on, they seem like a bunch of sleazy crooks. They don't seem like a kind yeah. of lovable gang of rogues, which maybe that, is what that, you'd expect. That's a great point. Like in, in a, in a certain way, like in the DS9 episode, like their adversary is this guy, Frankie Eyes, who runs the casino, right? And who's, who's trying to run Vic out of town and all of that. It's almost like an Ocean Eleven's. Ocean's Eleven, like all eleven of them are like Frankie eyes. They're like these these kind of you know criminals that are that are looking to <laughs> to to do these. Like the adversary in the DS Nine episode is almost like in the original movie. You have like eleven of them there, right? It's it's odd. Well, I think partly think that's that because way. the element that is missing from the original movie, which is a big part of the DS Nine episode, and indeed is a huge part of the remake of the movie. Interestingly, is the mafia. Now, the Mafia doesn't feature in Ocean's Eleven, the movie, whereas in the remake, you, you know, there's there's this kind of, it, it, there's always this danger, you know, you go up against these guys that have you killed. There's this kind of, it's not just about money, it's about kind of power and, and all this stuff. And of course, you know, you've got Frank Sinatra, who has these kind of Mafia links himself. I mean, famously, apparently, yeah. I didn't realise this, but, you know, Frank Sinatra owed part of his um, movie career to uh, Mafia interference basically ringing up the studio this is in the scene that kind of is replayed in the godfather and, and getting him apart and basically saying yeah you know i know you think you want to go another way with that role but that's not going to work out very well for you uh, so sinatra gets his you know his, his movie role at the right moment so you've got someone in this film who literally owes their career to some extent to mob so interference they, so they couldn't really say exactly yeah. about it in the movie yeah. right and of course you know frankie eyes or blue eyes is sinatra's nickname there's definitely a kind of parallel there with Yes, you know, on one level, I suppose Vic Fontaine is kind of in the Frank Sinatra role. On another level, Frankie Eyes is a kind of Frank Sinatra stand-in, sort of, or at least a kind of reference there. So there's this weird element that, um, and I just think, I think it's striking. I, I, I don't think it likely that the writers of the new version of Ocean's Eleven were particularly watching this DS9 episode, but it's kind of interesting that in both these attempts to update this story, what these two groups of writers felt it needed was the mafia. And yet that's yeah. noticeably I, absent from the original one, even though these yeah. casinos, I mean like the Sands casino where Sinatra was playing yeah. was a mob casino. And that's one of the ones they're knocking right. off, but that does not come into the story, obviously. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, for, for all the reasons that you said, but also I think both the DS9 episode and probably the remake got the idea as well, because it was just, I think well known even by that time that uh, the mafia was, profiting off and running a lot of these casinos yeah it's it, it's it's pretty interesting to think about and then you know later on they can acknowledge like yeah that's really what's happening but it you're right it becomes an important dramatic part of the ds9 episode that that really works like there are these criminals that are running it they're trying to rough up our friend vic let's take their money i mean of course like like you know he's just a holographic character but in the end frankie eyes basically gets killed for what, for what happens right which is an interesting like choice there but that's how they have to end the program yeah 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 it's interesting i suppose the two the two threats to vic really in this episode are the mob on one hand 
and what goes along with it sleaze on the other because basically because we you know what happens in that opening scene is of course his kind of wholesome you know crooning is replaced by these kind of sexy dancers and there's this whole thing with odo is entranced by the sexy dancers and so on um and you know even esri's outfit as the waitress is kind of ridiculously uh sort of provocative waitress outfit that you know she would not have been working what should not have, she would not have been wearing had she worked in the kind of old version of vic's lounge so again there's this sort of weird sense that the rat pack is almost the threat in the ds9 episode you know the rat pack ideals of if you can call them ideals the rat pack kind of um, associations of sort of mob influence plus sleaze are are not part of the heroic element of the story they're part of they're, they're they get put on the side of the antagonists they become part of the kind of um they're part of what has to be sort of fought against so there's a weird kind of element there where the story is sort of drawing on these different elements and and redeploying them slightly compared to where they came from originally and of course i mean oceans 11 is a big influence on this episode but you know so are innumerable mafia movies hence my ropey impersonation at the beginning you, you know the guy who plays the mob boss what's his name Z- zito or zemo or whatever it is it just just feels like a kind of sort of pastiche of a sort of mafia movie villain do you know what i mean there's a kind of element of that and the, and the script for the ds9 episode is absolutely drawing on on these things as well as the original movie and not to mention you know uh Armand bashir and the kind of james bond stuff a, lo- a lot of what uh bashir is doing is kind of you know, he even orders a martini at one point, uh, still not shaken, I think, in this case. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the guy who played Zemo is Mark Lawrence, who is actually known for playing kind of gangster right, types right. of movies. There you go. So yeah. <laughs> he's very much fitting for that role. But yeah, it, it like, I think what I really like is they took this idea from Ocean's Eleven. Of course, you're right, there are other ideas, but I think that's one of the main influences. And they kind of subverted it into something different for the purposes of the show, because you couldn't just directly take that idea and and all of a sudden you know our deep space nine characters are all out for the money like it doesn't make sense in terms of who they are and in terms of where they are in star trek and all of that but i like that they were able to fit it in the show in a way that didn't feel like they were forcing it but they were just taking inspiration and making it into something that feels right for the show i think that's why it works really well. and it's a great example i think of it might be my favorite holodeck episode or holosuite episode in some ways because i mean and it's I can't think of another one. Well, no, I can I can think of one or two. I mean, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite would be another example, which similarly does the same thing. But but the vast majority of holodeck episodes, the tension and the kind of narrative drive is all about something going wrong with the holodeck. Do you know what I mean? There's some kind of problem. I mean, in this case, there's something that kind of goes wrong, but it was meant to go wrong. And there's no, like, like I said, there's no stakes for the real, you know, real in, inverted commas people. There's no... There's no real bleed between the real world and the holodeck world in the way that there normally is in those kind of stories. It's literally just this is taking place. This is a game within a fictional TV show. Do you know what I mean? And and we're invested in the characters playing this game, even though it's not even, you know, not only are they not real in our world, but it's not even real in their world. But still, we care about the outcome. Yeah, and the stakes are really for Vic, right? Like one thing they clearly didn't do is they were like, oh no, the holodeck safeties exactly, are yeah. off. You might get killed by the bullets. Like, no, they were not going to be harmed no matter what. But the the real consequences were for Vic. And I think that's a really great thing that they're doing because they're really emphasizing like Vic is important as his own like sentient being. And I do think of Vic like that because he does very much act like that. Like, and at one point I think that someone is suggesting like, 
well, why don't you just reset the program? It's like, no, Vic will lose all of his memories and who he is. And Vic's like, I don't like the sound of that. You know, like, but there, there's no way that they're going to do that, even though that seems like there's this, this problem. Well, <laughs> this problem that was implanted by Felix, apparently. I'd like to meet that guy and see what he's like. But anyway. He's one of those great off-screen characters that we never get to see. You know, the, the more you yeah. hear about them, yeah. the, the more but yeah, I do, curious I do think it are, emphasizes yeah. that, that he is like a character that is as important and should feel as real to us as any of the other characters, right? Which I think is is great. The emphasis is on like him and how important he is to these people. And there's that interesting moment, isn't there? Because early on in the episode, he's actually being quite cautious. He's kind of, uh, and, and there is a slight element. I sort of sometimes wonder, it, it's O'Brien and Bashir are the ones who are quite gung-ho about all this and like, don't worry, we'll come up with a plan. We'll sort it all out and so on. And you can't help thinking, well, yeah, but to them, it is just a game. And, you, you know, the stakes for them are quite low and they are gambling with Vic's life, whatever his, whatever that means. For him, it's very real. And, and to begin with, he's kind of, he, he's a bit unwilling to go along with it and thinks, you know, who are this bunch of crackpots, basically? I mean, he doesn't know. Obviously, he knows them and he's heard a bit about the Dominion War. He's sort of heard about what's going on in their reality, but he doesn't know them. He, he only knows a side of them, if you know what I mean. Um, but then later on, he's actually kind of directly risking his own life or his own existence. And there's that scene, which I, I think is quite clever, where he pretends to recognise the, the sort of much younger girlfriend of the mafia boss, basically. And I think it's a really interesting moment because it's kind of a trope from these sorts of stories that, you you know, you have a group of con artists, they're trying to pull off a con. Uh, they're, part of that is that they're acting certain roles and everyone has to kind of remain in character. And there's a threat to that if anyone that knows them in their real life and their real identity recognises them and can potentially kind of see through that and, and ruin that. You get that in the original Ocean's Eleven, you get this woman who uh, sees Sinatra, Sinatra's character, Danny Ocean in Vegas and rings up his wife and says, you know, your, your husband, she thinks he's having an affair. She doesn't realise he's trying to knock off the casino. Um, you get that in, uh, certainly in the remake of the Ocean's film. You get any kind of you play out this sort of thing. It's a, it's a beat of tension where you have someone who recognises it and could pull the plug on the whole thing. The second Ocean's Eleven remake movie has a, the most bizarre element of this uh, trope where, because they, they kind of go a bit mad in that movie, but because Julia Roberts plays Mrs. Ocean, basically George Clooney's wife in the film, um, at the key point in the second film, this is a spoiler, sorry for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's, it's probably the least uh, good of any of these films. So, you know, maybe skip it anyway. They need, they need an extra person uh, and they don't know what to do. Their plan's fallen apart and they realise that the wife of the main character bears a striking resemblance to Julia Roberts. And so the the scheme that they come up with is she's going to impersonate Julia Roberts. And so she goes to this fancy art gallery impersonating Julia Roberts, playing this woman impersonating Julia Roberts. Um, and then who should turn out to be staying at the same hotel but um, Bruce Willis, who knows Julia Roberts, you know. And so Bruce Willis is in the film as well as Bruce yeah. Willis. Julia Roberts is in the film as this woman who looks like Julia Roberts. And so they're, but, but they're kind of making a joke of it, but they're making a joke of this trope of the tense moment where someone says oh hey you know so and so i haven't seen you in years what the ds9 episode does is takes that trope but turns it on its head so vic does it deliberately and and he's making it up he doesn't know this woman yeah. he's never seen her before in his yeah. life but he's exactly using that trope and inverting it to try to stall um and to kind of buy them a little bit of extra time but also he's you know seriously risking his life in the process because he's you know deliberately pissing off this uh mafia boss who could you know easily have him 
taken out and, and shot. As indeed, you know, it seems like that's what's about to happen in the kind of, you know, in the final stretch of that episode. So it's a great way, I think, for the story to to pick up on these these kind of elements, these sort of generic elements, these elements that are in the original film and also in this kind of broader cultural landscape, but replay them in their own ways. But it also works as a kind of dramatic beat for Vic because it's the point where he he kind of goes all in at that point. He sort of um, is, is really part of the the scheme in a major way and, and the linchpin at that point of, of keeping the plan together at great risk to himself. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's a great episode because like each of the decisions I think that they make in the DS9 episode, like it, it makes sense within the context of what they're going for and 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 it and it's just something that works for each of the characters. I, I feel like whenever I watch this episode, like there's not a, a bad decision I feel like that that they're making. They're they're just keeping it within this kind of lighter style, but there are really consequences for Vic and they're they're doing things all together in a way that that really makes sense for how they've kind of come together over the over the course of all these years. Well, for Esri, she's only been there for like half a year, but but um it it I, I like it because it just seems to make sense what they're doing. Nothing to me seems kind of forced in the way that they're they're doing. It's all working toward the plot. But even rewatching it, there's things that, you know, I forgot about, like, you know, uh Nog is is going into the 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 safe room or whatever because, you know, I'll the, the people are gone and then Odo shapeshifts out of something like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know? And like, that's something that's unique to what DS nine can, can bring to it. So I just feel like, you know, like all the little decisions that they're making just, just make sense. And I really enjoy it. And, you know, for the movie oceans 11, I feel like there was a bunch of things where I was like, I don't know about that. And really, and like, yeah, yeah. especially when it gets toward, toward the end where it's like, are they really going to do that? Okay. They're really going to do that. <laughs> you know? When you said about so. Nog, it, it reminds me of that montage. I love that montage that you get. I mean, you, you get obviously the famous scene of them all uh, striding along the promenade with the music and that. everything. It's great, great moment. Also that kind of great moment with Qu- Quark gets his kind of contractual one line in the episode. We saw Worf in Ops for one line earlier. <laughs> Quark gets his one line to, to kind of say what yeah. the hell's going on. I have to say they could have thrown in Quark, they they could have thrown in Quark and Worf and it could have been I know, eleven. I know, of them I don't know why they didn't. Right? Well, you know, maybe they thought, but maybe it's maybe the point is eleven's too many, and they actually they improved on the original by streamlining it a little bit. But I I love that kind of montage where you get them all practicing. You've got Nod practicing his lock cracking. You've got Bashir practicing with his thing, yeah. and then you get Cisco practicing rolling dice, and he's like getting really into it. And you're like, what? Yeah. Does, does this <laughs> really? You know, <laughs> I mean, has he has he spent what half an hour practicing how to roll dice? Is that something that you know is is so alien? But you do get this sense um, when once he gets into it, you know, into the actual playing of it, uh, he's supposed to be this high roller, and Vic's basically saying to him, "You're not spending enough money. You know, you should be spending." two thousand dollars not a hundred dollars or whatever and and cisco's clearly just thinking i don't know about money you you, you know this is just like it's monopoly <laughs> it's like, money what? to me yeah. who cares and of course it is because it's the holodeck then you know the money isn't real and there's that weird sense you know the money isn't real because it's star trek so star trek characters don't understand money the money isn't real because it's holographic money it's also not it's interesting it's not part of the plot i mean it's part of the plot, but it's not, it's kind of a MacGuffin. It's not, they're not really after the money. As you said, in the original movie, they're after the money. Now, interestingly, in both stories, the money ends up in the trash. And, and in the original movie, the money ends up destroyed uh, effectively. But, you, you know, the, the 
in the original movie they have to put it in the trash because that's the only place that no one will see where it is and see where it's going so it's you know it seems worthless essentially and and sammy davis jr can take it out of town and they can get hold of it later in star trek the money goes in the trash because money is irrelevant you, you know uh, it kind of it doesn't matter it's it, 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 who, who cares about the money the money just goes in the bin uh, and the main thing is just that the money isn't there in the safe at that moment so there's the kind of interesting element of it's almost there's something almost sort of emblematically star trek about that that this story which is about stealing a large amount of money comes to be a story where the money is the least significant object all they have to do is is dispose of it get rid of money and everything's fine you know it's all you could have said it's, it's almost yeah, a sort yeah, of uh it, it is star trek's yeah, utopian kind of socialist message uh right there on a plate in some ways as far as the ds9 episode is concerned the money is only important in that you need to do something with it in order to get this guy off vic's back like it could have been something else it could have been jewels or something i don't know but i mean clearly like the money is is very important for these holographic characters right it's important for frankie eyes and zemo and then there's this scene where you know cisco throws up all the money as a distraction and everybody's like scrambling around to get it so like it's important within this like clearly artificial construct that doesn't matter but i I hadn't really thought about it it is almost like saying you know as on so many levels this money is just not important (laughs) right to anybody except the people that are going to disappear once everything's done it's a great episode i I love this episode and i do i love the ending i love the song at the end i think it is and iris stephen bear says in ds9 companion has quite a lot on this episode lots of great interviews and one of them is he was basically saying he'd been trying for years to work out an excuse because they'd had like you know moments of avery brooks singing he knew he had this great singing voice and he was trying to think you know what what storyline can we do where we can justify actually you know giving him a number basically um and this was the perfect one just as you know in the original movie you have dean martin doing you know and sammy davis jr you know doing their numbers basically here we get finally a chance for and, and at the last moment you know this is as i said the last hurrah before this big epic finale essentially this kind of final stretch this is the moment where we can give him that opportunity to do that and it's you know it's a wonderful it's a wonderful moment it's a wonderful kind of addition to star trek i think it's it's great because I, I i love that kind of music and just hearing like avery brooks and and james darren sing together they they sound so good together but there's there's also the, this great element that you know they they sing the song and then you know they they kind of you know embrace a little bit at the end and then like in the 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 final bit of the song you see the the station with the ships around it and i don't know there's just something about the way that that combines together like there's this wonderful song and then you're seeing the outside of ds9 with this kind of music that makes me happy to hear it that i just love like how it how it ends it just like always makes me feel like good in that moment like okay there's been this tension we've had to do something for Vic and now we can just like exhale and enjoy and smile and have a great time. Right. Like whenever I'm watching this episode, especially that, that, that song, like I forget about everything else. (laughs) It's just pure joy just to, just to see it. So I think it's, it's so wonderful that they were able to do this. And from something that now that I've seen what inspired it, I really am not (laughs) a fan of like what inspired it, but what they made it into is great. And I think that, it really points up that you can take inspiration from a lot of different kinds of things, whether it's, you know, the best thing you can imagine or like, oh, they have a great kernel of an idea and you can make it into something that's that's really special because I feel like I'm sure some people listening to this are big fans of Ocean's Eleven, but clearly we're not like 
big fans of it, but I love that they helped to make it into something special, like one of my favorite things in Star Trek. So it's, that's really great. Oh, by the way, did you notice that there's another Star Trek connection from Ocean's no, Eleven? No, No? Do you see that one of the um, story co-writers is George Clayton Johnson, who wrote The Man Trap in the original right, series? Right, I didn't, I had not picked up on that. There you go, I failed in my in my memory alpha research. That's uh, yeah, an interesting... Yeah, I just noticed that name oh, okay. and I was like, oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, I don't know, five, six years before he, he did that. Go. So, okay, okay. Clearly a very different story, but but yeah, like I, I like that there are like the, the little little connections there but uh yeah and like when i was watching the movie and then i was watching the the episode and you see like the nine of them like going down i was thinking like this is like ocean space nine yeah. <laughs> right because there's there's nine of them and it's inspired by oceans 11 i just and it is know, kind of it's of kind of an echo of the, the final shot of oceans 11 again is sort of going for this cool factor i mean it's a very downbeat ending and yet they have this shot of them also moodily walking out and you get all their names coming up on the screen and it's like you know look at all these great cool guys yeah. we've got in our film it's weird though. It almost feels who look very who look very depressed right now. Right now but yeah, but wasn't it cool watching it's them weird, for two I hours? Uh, you, you know, in this movie. But it also feels it has a real you know to a modern audience. It has this sort of Reservoir Dogs feel, or it has this kind of. In some ways, I sort of wondered whether you know is Tarantino a sort of element sort of lurking in the ether here on some level i mean i guess some you know because some of his earlier films would have been out by this point something about the kind of coolness of it because i feel like the original oceans 11 it captures some of the it, it certainly trades off the coolness of those guys of the rat pack but i don't feel the film makes them particularly cool the film doesn't make them it doesn't glamorize them it doesn't do anything to kind of make them seem cool or aspirational in that way in the way that you know tarantino did make these you know even often quite reprehensible characters seem really cool and really kind of um uh, charismatic and so on. The DS9 episode, I think it does do that, you know, in that, in that montage and in that shot in particular, it's very much going for this idea of, you know, uh, these are our, these are our team. This is our, you know, look how cool they are. Look how great they are. And you kind of see it in, you know, the way that footage is used again, say in the DS9 documentary, they kind of, you know, they, 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 they use that, um, you know, that's one of the bits that they remastered because it's so, it is kind of iconic in its own right, and it has this real, it's sort of congratulatory in some ways. And I think they even use it again in What We Left Behind, don't they? they they've, that's one of the scenes that they kind of go back to in the montage, so. you know. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's so rare to see something like that where there's a lineup of so many characters. And of course, because it's Deep Space Nine, it's not like all of the main characters. There are more recurring characters that are, you know, yeah. here sometimes, <laughs> like Nog. But, but just having like that, that lineup is like such an unusual thing. I think for any show to like see it kind of in, in that way, it's, it is really cool. I just, it yeah, fits weirdly. It's great. And it must've been great fun just to be part it of it. It fits that. weirdly in an odd way with this idea, you know, in the original oceans 11 of them as this team of uh, soldiers, do you know what I mean? And you do have this kind of parallel, as I say in DS9, where they're, they're in this war environment. Okay. You know, Cassidy's not a soldier, uh, etc. but you know, the rest of them, they are in this military environment. They are kind of uh, military, you know, comrades in a sense. I don't know. It's, it's, it's an unusual shot for Star Trek because you're right. You don't generally get that kind of sort of heroic group shot necessarily, but it's staged. It is cheesy, but it's cheesy. And yet at the same time, quite effective, you know, and it, um, I don't know. It, I just feel like lots of elements of it, they come together really well. And, and maybe, maybe the answer is the original Ocean's Eleven. If they'd ended on Frank Sinatra, 
doing a song, that would have been a better ending, you know, quite apart from whether they won the money, lost yeah. the money, who cares about the money? Um, the DS9 episode has the yeah, and maybe even like to, a, to end on a high note, you know, and end, literally end on a musical number. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe it could have, Ocean's Eleven, the original one, could have ended with Frank Sinatra singing some song that's a bit illustrative of the situation. Like you hear Vic on DS9 singing like songs of that era that are, that are, and doesn't he even sing one in DS9, something like Here's to the Losers yeah, yeah, yeah. or something like that? Like, if you had something like that in Ocean's Eleven, I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> They're just kind of like accepting, like, okay, we've lost out on this one, but it's okay. Well, and they even wrote a fake anyway. uh, song for this episode, didn't they? Because that song about the Alamo at the beginning. You know what? I didn't realize. I never realized that. Until I, I read it. I know. I always assumed it, it was <laughs> some really obscure song. And I was just like, it's a bit random that someone wrote this song all about the Alamo. But I guess it makes sense, you know, that they'd use it in this episode. It turns out a complete fake. Yeah. It's, uh, you, you could have the the, the yeah. Romulan guy, you know, it's a fake. It, it, it turns out also that the the, the movie that he, that uh, Vic is referencing, the Alamo, mm. like they're they're talking about, you know, the original Alamo and <laughs> in Texas, but he's talking about yeah. the movie, which also came out the same year as the original uh-huh. Ocean's Eleven, okay. which I thought was interesting. interesting. But but uh, yeah, like they actually wrote something for that, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. They didn't have to begs the question: <laughs> Did Vic, you know, if Vic went to see the Alamo at the cinema, did he also go and see Ocean's Eleven? <laughs> and if so was it was frank sinatra a friend of his you know <laughs> hey guys this reminds me of a movie yeah, that i exactly, saw yeah exactly well it's been a lot of fun uh talking about oceans 11 and butter bing yeah. butter bang um today justin before we go do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you on the network and if they want to get in touch with you on social media what's the best way of doing it? yeah well you can find me elsewhere on the network co-hosting the line that's our dedicated star trek picard podcast that's with my friends chrissy de clerk zalagi and brandon shane matala so now that season one of picard has ended we are still having episodes a little bit less often we've had some interviews we're going to have some other episode topics and ideas coming up that are really exciting so if you haven't checked out the line i hope that you do uh, you can also find me on twitter i'm at trekfan4747 where i tweet about nothing but star trek and you can find me hanging around the babel conference on facebook well heists and capers are not the only thing we've been talking about on trek fm this week so here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network previously on trek.fm the orb but of all the section 31 that we're getting in new trek this feels the most legitimate this feels like the section 31 yeah. that we we know from yeah. Deep Space Nine, and it doesn't feel like, oh, we're just going back to the well again, because, you know, even Ira said, you know, I know they've used it in the movies, but we created this. Earl Grey. Uh, no, still no clue. It's gonna, I'm going to kick myself when I get it. Yeah, tell us, Jim. Kirsten Dunst. Oh, oh Kirsten my Dunst. gosh, I, of course. I hate the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Kirsten. my gosh, I knew that. What's wrong with us? The best lockdown performance in all seven seasons, in my opinion. Literary Treks. If this were an episode of Voyager, and I actually think this book would make an interesting episode of Voyager, and like we kind of hinted at, maybe it's very much like an episode <laughs> of Voyager that we'll talk about. I don't think it would have been called Seven of Nine, right? No. Now, it would have to have like a one word title to fit in with most of the other Voyager episodes. So you can't really remember which one it's about. Yeah, it would just exactly. be called Seven. That's what it would be called. <laughs> <laughs> to the journey! She did actually mean mm-hmm. what she said in the back in the space just before they die. I don't know, I just kind of like it. 
He's just I'm going to tell you I love you just before I die. Not a minute sooner. <laughs> it's like, at least I don't have to deal with the ramifications if I'm dead. <laughs> well, that backfired. Or maybe she was just like, at least I don't have to hear him not say it if we're going to die. So what you're saying is next time that we ask someone to marry them or anyone who asks someone to marry them, they should do it on death's door of like some kind yes. of crazy adventure, like jumping off a bungee jump. Yes, you're in the middle of being eaten by a shark or something. I love you, gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at @missamynelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at @clara_jean_mc and Tony at, at @ajblackwriter. You're blended already. Right.